Hi everyone, so I'm back with some criminal law and today I'm going to be going through criminal law defenses. So this is quite a big topic and um, this includes self-defense, insanity, automatism, intoxication, compulsion, necessity and mistake of fact. So hopefully I haven't missed one out but I think those are all of the criminal law defenses. Now a criminal law defense is important as when we consider the equation for a guilty verdict it requires the actus reus and the mens rea at the same time plus the absence of a legally valid defense. So the defense counsel will have to bring up a defense and this will be this is known as like the evidential burden so there are two types of defenses the first is the failure of proof so this is where an essential element of the offense cannot be proven beyond a reasonable doubt by the prosecution now just to like state from the outset just so we can get out of the way mistake of fact is what um is relates to the failure of proof defense so essentially it's the defendant's honest belief in the facts and that they did differ from an objective understanding of what's happening so an example of this would be taking someone's umbrella thinking it's your own umbrella so in that case there would be no intention to actually commit any crime of theft so essentially mistake of fact operates for offenses that require a subjective mens rea so this is intention and recklessness so it's a mismatch between a subjective understanding and the reality so if we just contrast this with the mistake of law which is ignorance of the law that is not a defense so um, just not knowing that that particular conduct is an offense is not a defense so in that way failure of proof relates to mistake of fact and that is it so moving on to affirmative positive defenses this is where someone has done all the elements for the offense but there's actually a defense available which um kind of nullifies i guess everything so here the prosecution has the burden of disproving the evidence around a defense so now we'll talk about the first kind of defense and the first defense i guess i'll just i'll just talk about the large section for defenses of property i think i forgot to mention that but this is like a subset so it's all relating to defense of property so this extends from section 52 to 56 of the crimes act and this is where you can use circumstances it's when in circumstances where you can use limited force to defend your property so 52 is movable property against a trespasser 53 is movable profit property with a claim of right so it belongs to you defense of 
54 is a defense of movable property without a claim of right so this is when you don't actually own the movable property 55 is the defense of a dwelling house and 56 is defense of land or building so note that 55 defense of a dwelling house is the most different from 52 53 54 and 56 as it stands out but i will explain that later so section 52 states that everyone in peaceful possession of any movable thing and anyone lawfully assisting him is justified in using reasonable force to resist the taking of the thing by any trespasser or to retake it from any trespasser if in either case he or she does not strike or do bodily harm to the trespasser so essentially 52 states that you have to be protecting a movable thing such as a phone or laptop that you are in lawful possession of so this is something you own and you're justified in using reasonable force so this is an objective test to resist the taking of the thing or to retake it so you cannot strike or use any bodily harm to the trespasser so it means that you can scuffle with the trespasser but you can't actually like physically attack them in any way and that's pretty much it moving on to section 53 it's the exact same as 52 however you have a claim of right here so it says anyone in peaceful possession of any movable thing under a claim of right and everyone acting under his or her authority is protected from criminal responsibility for defending his or her possession by the use of reasonable force even against a person entitled by position by law to possession if he or she does not strike or do bodily harm to the other person so essentially i think what this is is that you have a belief of a claim of right so you actually probably own the item and the person who actually um has the thing on them possesses it i guess so your right kind of trumps them and the same 53 you are entitled to use reasonable force and this is a objective test and you cannot attack the person or strike them so moving on to 54 it is where you do not have a claim of right therefore you are not justified <laughs> in using any force so essentially if you don't own it or you don't have any positionary rights you are not entitled to actually defend yourself or defend your property so that's actually not really a defense at all it's just like a section that states that if you don't own it you can't do anything about it and then section 55 is the most different so you have to be in peaceable possession of a dwelling house so you you're possessing a dwelling house and you're justified in using force as necessary to prevent forceful breaking and entering to a dwelling house by any person if he believes on reasonable grounds reasonable and proper grounds that there is no lawful justification for breaking and entering so this is still a objective test so it's what's reasonable what's force is necessary however you are not controlled so you can actually strike someone and then considering the next one which is section 56 
it is the peaceable position of the land or building and you are justified in using reasonable force to prevent anyone from trespassing and you are not allowed to strike or cause bodily harm so just to summarize these are all objective tests however section 55 allows you to actually attack the person who is interfering with your goods however it must be reasonable in the circumstances 52 53 54 and 56 are controlled to just a scuffle and you cannot actually strike the trespasser or the person who's interfering with your property so that is property property defenses and now i'll move on to self-defense so self-defense relates to just the defense of others and yourself so the essence of self-defense is that a person attacked has no legitimate means of dealing with the attack they should be entitled to use as much force to defend themselves as is reasonable reasonable in the circumstances as they believe them to be so this is a two-part test there is a subjective part which states what circumstances is the defendant themselves believed to be in so subjectively what is your kind of perception of your circumstances it changes according to the person and then the objective question is what is reasonable to respond to that so this is provided for in section 48 of the crimes act and section 62 states that you will be liable for any excess force used so just to note self-defense is a complete defense so it results in an acquittal and the defense counsel has the evidentiary burden so you have to bring it up otherwise it will not be i guess um directed to the jury at all and the crown must disprove the defense so firstly the requirement for self-defense there are two requirements the first is self-defense is only available in respect of offenses involving the use of force so someone else uses force against you you can use it back so in the case of teriwi self-defense can be used in regard to threats so someone might threaten you and you can actually use force back however it must be reasonable and in the case of hocking and police driving is not considered a force so you cannot state that you're using self-defense in regard to a car that's driving towards you that's what i assume however in the in the case of r and riddell in the uk the court of appeal said that they wouldn't rule out self-defense for driving so that is kind of just in the air and in the case of Thule, you can't use self-defense in regard to possessing something. So possessing a weapon, you can't really say that you were possessing the weapon for self-defense. And 
and in the case of Busby, it was held that Thule is wrong because position offences do not involve force, so assault offence is not available. So that's just kind of some pre pre kind of entry stuff. But the second requirement is that you must be responding to a threat to the person. So in Teriwi, you can defend yourself or another against a verbal threat. In the case of Neil, you can defend yourself or another against a threat of psychiatric injury. So moving on to the elements of self-defense. There are two parts to it that's subjective and objective. So subjective is what did you believe, what were the circumstances you believed to be in, and objective is was the force you used reasonable in response to that. So this case was kind of the case of Bridger kind of set these elements out. So it was basically just three questions they kind of split up into is what were the circumstances the accused honestly and genuinely believed to be in? So this could actually be mistaken or even when you're intoxicated. It's just what you what you kind of thought. Then in those circumstances, was the accused honestly acting in defense or defense of another? Which is quite an easy question. It's are you just acting for yourself or to protect another? And then question three is, was the force used reasonable in the circumstances? So, I guess in regards to the genuine and honest belief, which is subjective, the credibility of the accused is quite important. So, um, the more unreasonable a belief is, the less likely the jury are likely to believe it. So, considering the objective element, which asks what is reasonable, the jury will have to consider reasonableness regarding like three main questions. The three main questions is that you need to consider whether the, it was imminent. So how imminent was the attack going to be? Second, um, was the force used proportionate to the danger that you kind of faced? And then whether there was an alternative course of action. So could you have avoided that? Could you have like retreat or could you have shot them somewhere else? Instead of like in the head, you could shot them in the foot. So the leading case for this is Wang, which relates to an abusive marriage where the wife smothers her own husband in his sleep because she is just, I guess, afraid about what he's going to do so in this case she wasn't actually facing immediate danger um so the attack was actually not imminent so i guess this kind of would relate to actually um battered woman syndrome as this was abusive marriage and there was probably imminency in the sense that it was just unavoidable but here there was no imminence and she actually had other options and therefore self-defense was not available to her so that is pretty much self-defense it's not actually that difficult i guess 
so now i'll move on to insanity and automatism which has quite a lot of overlap so if i just get my charger my laptop is going to die okay so moving on to insanity and automatism so insanity is when one isn't able to reason or appreciate right from wrong and this usually stems from a mental disorder so this is at the time of the offending and is actually provided for in section 23 of the crimes act so insanity is a legal construct so it is something that the law has made up and the main kind of things that relate to insanity are mental disorders and just diseases of the mind so basically it relates to the cognitive processes in one's head and concerned with like the intellectual reasoning processes so the major types of mental disorders which are associated with insanity involve psychosis which is mainly kind of delusions hallucinations schizophrenia and paranoia and additive disorders that arise from addictions so for example if you have um, alcohol withdrawal symptoms or delirium tremens this may fall within insanity however addiction itself which is voluntary does not really fall within insanity sorry my laptop just went off um that's pretty much it so it is something that is internal to you and it's in your cognitive kind of processes and that's pretty much it so in the case of Mick Norton it was held that every man is presumed to be sane until the contrary is proven so to establish a defense on the ground of insanity it must be proven that at the time of committing the offense the party accused was laboring under such a defect of reason from disease of the mind so it is this is the kind of basis of insanity is that everyone is presumed to be sane until the contrary is proven and you must be laboring under a disease of the mind so with insanity there's a change up of the burden and standard of proof so you are presumed to be sane and the defendant must prove they are insane so the defendant has the evidential burden and the persuasive burden but because it's switched you only are required to prove it on the civil standard of proof which is on the balance of probabilities and not on beyond reasonable doubt so the crown can't raise insanity if the defense have not brought up so this was actually provided for in the case of green where the prosecution can't raise insanity if the defense don't agree to it as with the insanity defense it brings a lot of stigma and also will usually result in ramifications such as mental kind of being sent to a mental hospital or something like that which some people do not want so 
even when the dis- defense of insanity has not been raised the judge can put insanity to the jury where there is evidence that reasonably raises it as a defense so the judge can raise insanity on behalf of the defense even though the defense have not brought it up however the prosecution cannot raise the defense so this is just the judge only the judge can bring it up and this is provided for in section 20 subsection 4 of the criminal procedure act so that's pretty much it if we move on to some case law which relates to expert evidence in order to raise insanity expert evidence must be proven so it's very important that you have expert evidence and this is what the jury will have to deal with so in the case of clark is how the court can quash a jury's conviction and substitute it for an insanity verdict if the jury's verdict was unreasonable and unable to be supported regarding expert evidence so if the jury don't agree with the experts the court can actually step in and substitute the finding the jury can't disregard the unchallenged evidence of professionals However, in the case of Rotana, it was held that the jury can disagree with expert evidence so long as their verdict is supported by other evidence. So this is distinguished from Clark as Clark, there was no reason to go against the expert evidence. However, in Rotana, there was expert evidence that they could base their disagreement on. So, usually the outcome of the defense of insanity is that you are not guilty by reason of insanity however that usually results in an order that you be detained as a special patient or that you are sent to a hospital or you can be sent for immediate release or you can be um, subject to imprisonment if you were already in prison so if we move on to disease of the mind and natural imbecility there's not really any definitions for these however in the cases of um, Porter it was how that it does not require an actual physical deterioration of cells in the brain it just requires that you are kind of there's no functioning of the understanding of um, your mind so it deals with understanding in the case of Kempt it was held that the mental faculties of reasoning are just not ordinarily used it basically finds that um, it's irrelevant the condition of the brain and it's just concerned with um, mental derangement so moving to the case of Sullivan it was held that you can have temporary insanity so a type of epileptic episode can be considered as insanity and the main question is is it internal to the accused 
if it is it is insanity so in the case of bratty it was held that if it's prone to reoccur it is likely to be insanity so in the case of chia tham it was held that you need total impairment so you need to be rendered incapable to the point where it's like totally like impairment like you can't just be partially impaired and in the case of coderia or coder it was held that it must render you incapable to understand the nature and quality of the act which refers to the physical character of the act or omission so that's pretty much it so um in new zealand it's mainly based on whether the accused kind of knows the act is morally wrong not whether it's wrong for others to do so this is a subjective moral standard test it is basically asking whether the accused himself knew that the act was morally wrong so that is it the main kind of main kind of thing to think about is is it prone to reoccur and is it an internal condition so with these two things did the accused himself know that what they were doing was wrong for him personally not for other people so it's a subjective test so thinking about even the overlap now with insanity and automatism so insanity relates to insane automatism and insane automatism is treated the same as insanity and essentially it relates to the internal state of mind but insane automatism is just an automatic state that's triggered internally so it's not really dealt with as in dealing with the mind it's dealing with an automatic state but it's just triggered internally and therefore it's probably prone to reoccur however it's not really dealing with the mind so on the other hand sane automatism is just an automatic state that that kind of arises from like an external blow or just even anything that's just external so this is a complete acquittal if this defense is founded and the burden of disproving this is beyond reasonable doubt so you can't run insanity and sane automatism at the same time so in the case of sullivan it was held that epilepsy arises from an internal condition and this is insane automatism so epilepsy it kind of puts you in an automatic state however it actually doesn't render your mind incapable it's more like an automatic state of yours so it's more like a body thing it's not really a mind thing however it is internal and therefore makes it insane automatism in the case of quick it was held that having low blood sugar which is hypoglycemia is non-insane automatism 
as lower blood sugar is an external factor so you it means that you have had too much insulin so it means that um yeah it just it was arising from external things because low blood sugar is an external factor so in terms of even the opposite of that which is hyperglycemia where the blood level blood sugar levels are too high this is where um the the blood sugar levels are too high due to being a diabetic therefore it is internal and in the in the um, case of rabies this relates to psychological blows so here um it kind of results in like feelings and how that kind of maybe really like shakes you up so in this case it held that you should apply the ordinary person test so would an ordinary person respond to the psychological blow like you would have if you acted in a way that was the same as some ordinary person it would be considered automatism just sane automatism but if it was something where you acted quite extremely this would be more of an insane automatism as it was something internal to you as you didn't act in a way that normal person would have so in the case of Burgess it was how that sleepwalking is a a sane automatism defense so um, this is usually just a one-off though because in other cases it's been held that repetitive sleepwalking actually is insane automatism so in the case of Yesler it was held that um, the psychological blow must be must give you an effect that is just an ordinary person if you act in a way that is extreme this will not be sane automatism it will be insane automatism so essentially automatism itself is just accused acting involuntarily it is concerned with um just the accused decision to act it kind of impacts your decision to to commit the actus reus so this is um protected by or provided for in section 20 of the crimes act so it's a common law defense and different examples of it would be sleepwalking uh, actions while suffering from a concussion actions while you've consumed alcohol to a degree where you have become zombie-like hypoglycemia where you have too much insulin um, actions while you have a stroke when you are having an epileptic fit or an uncontrollable reflex such as um, being attacked by wasps and then crashing your car so automatism is not short-term memory loss Um, that's pretty much it it also relates to impossibility of compliance so this is completely different subset but it's basically where you 
cannot avoid committing the actus reus of a crime. So, the main cases for this is Kilbride and Lake, where um, it requires that the mental stimulus requires required to promote an act is um, not like a choice of your will. So in the case of Burr, it was held that the accused mind is not making volitional choices about the actions their body is taking. So that's what automatism is. So on the case of in the case of Bannon, it was held that um, walking into the neighbor's house and molesting the victim was on the periphery of automatism. However, because the defendant had some awareness about the choices he was making, this was not automatism. Impaired awareness won't count as automatism as you are still animating your body, because in this case, the accused could actually appreciate his own actions as when the victim had mentioned that she was going to like tell tell someone about what he did he kind of withdrew so that kind of shows that he had some awareness and the case of Cottle held that sleepwalking is automatism that's pretty much it so even back to Kilbride and Lake um just not having a vehicle with a warrant on it was not the accused fault because some stranger had removed it so that was not your choice that was just impossibility of compliance in the case of B now um, the accused could not leave New Zealand because she was pregnant and no flights were willing to take her out because of her how far she would she was through her pregnancy so in that case it was how that she was um i guess she could not comply in the case of tifaga um it was how that she could not raise the impossibility of compliance defense as um he didn't have enough money to buy a ticket and this was his own decision he had set up the circumstances that made it impossible for him to comply. So, yes, in the case of Ryan, it was held that um, just like setting up the whole entire situation will, I guess, not allow you to raise automatism as um, you kind of set up the circumstances for that kind of risk I guess this is kind of similar to the case of Whitcliffe where a combination of all the acts such as actually setting up a situation and then killing the person on accident is not automatism and that was the same thing in the case of Murray So, in the case of Hartnell, it was held that operating the car by failing to put it in park mode and leaving the engine on was not automatism either because he had set up the whole situation. And in the case of Campbell, 
it was held that automatism was not available when the defendant lost self-control due to overwhelming memories of sexual abuse which triggered his um, control of his body so this is not really automatism when you lose self-control due to a trigger and yeah I guess in the case of um, police and H it was held that um, the defendant who went to the ex-wife's house and attacked her as he was emotionally out of control um, the defendant had enough functioning of the mind to be able to understand what was going on as he was able to hold conversations during the attack and even took pleasure in the victim's fear so this was not automatism so that is pretty much it this recording is super long and i've only gone through approximately like three of the defenses but i will talk about the other defenses in a bit so now we're going to be talking about intoxication so this is the defense of intoxication so this is also an evidentiary defense so it is not a positive one it is the negation of a mens rea so it is similar to mistake of fact so in new zealand there is no distinction between a voluntary and involuntary intoxication so if you're intoxicated doesn't matter how you got there that is you're just intoxicated so it is something that you take into consideration when you're looking at the kind of offense kind of section so that's the actus reus and mens rea section you're basically asking whether at the time someone did the actus reus do they actually have the mens rea despite that they were intoxicated so when you're drunk you kind of don't appreciate the risk or intention of the or even intend the outcome so this kind of relates to the mens rea so it's saying were you so drunk that the mens rea was not there so there's not too many cases on this defense however pretty much intoxication is used for subjective mens rea state so that's the same with mistake of fact they both go to subjective mens rea state so this relates to um, um, recklessness and intention so the first case called Kamapali, it states that you need to be in an automated state for intoxication to apply as a defense and because the accused in this case could recall facts to the police and remembered what happened he actually didn't lose his ability to function so it is basically asking whether your mens rea was impacted by your drunkenness so intoxication is relevant where someone is not completely it's intoxicated so yeah that's pretty much it for the case of Kamapali. um yeah it's, you're basically asking did they did the accused still have the intention or recklessness regardless of the intoxication so the next case of Tihi um, the court of appeal approved Kamapali basically you're asking if the offender recognized that there was a real possibility that 
they would be the outcome of their acts. So if they can appreciate the real possibility, then you can say that they had intent. Just because someone gives intoxication, the evidence of intoxication, it doesn't mean that they're criminally liable. It just means it has to be considered regarding whether they have mens rea. So the next case of here weenie. Basically, it says that if there's enough evidence of drinking, the trial judge must direct the jury on intoxication. And essentially, the big question is whether the accused actually had the relevant mens rea, not whether they actually had the capacity to have that mens rea. The case of Sheehan states that drunken intent is still an intent. Um, the jury will be asked whether intoxication impacted the person's intent or recklessness. So the mere fact that someone doesn't remember doing something doesn't mean they did not intend their behaviour at the time. So, Kamapali is our leading case on intoxication. So, when you're considering subjective mens rea states, you ask, did the intoxication affect whether or not someone has the requisite mens rea. If yes, despite their being intoxicated, guilt follows. So that's essentially intoxication. It's pretty simple. Just Kamapali is the leading case. And you're basically asking, did they still have the mens rea? Not whether they had the capacity to have the mens rea. It's did they have the mens rea? So that is intoxication. Now we're going to talk about compulsion. So compulsion and even necessity is there's quite a lot of overlap even regards to the names. So it must be really kept clear that compulsion relates to um, being threatened by another. So it is regarding a person, not a circumstance. So it's basically someone threatening you to commit an offence and this is provided for in section 24 of the Crimes Act. So self-defence cannot be used for particular offences such as murder, attempted murder, kidnapping, robbery, aggravated robbery, arson. So that's pretty much it. The burden of proof remains in the Crown. And this is just the normal burden and that's pretty much it. The elements are co- of compulsion, there are f- five elements. It is that, I mean four elements. It's you first of all have to have a threat of immediate death or grievous bodily harm. So this is very specific, a threat of immediate death or grievous bodily harm. The next element is from a person who is present when the offence is committed. So the person who's threatening you must be proximate to you to the sense that they must literally be threatening you with death or harm as you are carrying out the offence. And then next is that you have to believe that the threats will be carried out. And you also cannot be part of an association where you know you'll be made to do something. So essentially there's only three elements, but there's a one kind of side issue. 
the case of Tiger Man sets out the, the elements. So, to restate this, it is there has to be a threat to kill or cause grievous bodily harm. The threat must be immediate. The third person who has made the threat must be present during the commission of the crime, and the accused must commit the crime in the belief that the threat will be carried out. And you cannot be a party to an association or conspiracy. So, that is essentially Tigerman. The case of Hay states that. Um, hold on, my laptop is freezing right now. Okay, so basically, essentially, Hay states that you have to have evidence that there was a threat. So, that's pretty much it. You need to show that there was actually an actual threat. The case of Ra Roa states that you need to have specific threat to kill or cause grievous bodily harm. So, in this case, um, the accused knew that the um, person who was threatening him had a gun. However, it was not how to be proximate enough here. He just said that if you didn't help... Um, to dispose of the bodies he would be wasted and that was held to be not specific enough in the case of Joyce it was held that it needs to be immediate the threat must be immediate so in this case Joyce was the lookout and the main offender told her that she has to act as the lookout otherwise she would be shot and then he went inside and she was um, outside so it was held that um the threat was not immediate unless the person was in the position to execute the threat immediately and here the main offender wasn't so that is Joyce um, in the case of Niho it was how that person making the threat has to be in the physical presence of the accused so in this case there was people kind of waiting outside for her to carry out the dishonest use of a credit card but they were not inside with her like next to her they were just outside and this kind of links to the kind of um, flaws of the criminal law system as it was not recognized that she was um, acting under compulsion here although there was a long history of just um, kind of gang warfare I guess you could say in this case which kind of impacted and made her go through with the crime and once again my laptop is freezing so I'll just wait for it to just unfreeze this laptop is just really slow um yep I'll just read out something so it says the limitation only operates when it is proved that the very nature of the association was such that the offender as a reasonable man would have been able to foresee that the association was of a kind which at least rendered it possible that a later stage he might be made subject to compulsion so i think this relates to the the kind of last element which talks about um you can't be part of a like conspiracy or like even a kind of gang because you will likely be required to carry out some form of um, violence 
my laptop is really just freezing up now. It keeps turning on and off. And my mouse is just not working. So, um, just bear with me for a second. I don't know what to do. Okay, I think I might just end this recording and pick it up in a bit. So back to compulsion, my laptop stopped freezing again. Um, basically, the person in the case of Niho, it was held that the person making the threat has to be in the physical presence of the accused. So I guess I already went through Niho, but um, Section seventy four is silent on whether compulsion covers a threat aimed at others, and here this was a threat to her children and her. So. But in this case, the court didn't allow a defense of compulsion because it was not how to be proximate enough. So in the case of Ra Roa, it said, um, belief that the threat will be carried out can be a subjective test. So it is a subjective test. And basically, um, you have to ask whether there is a continuing threat when there is an opportunity of seeking help or protection or escaping is a question of fact in each case relevant to the belief of the accused at the time he claims to have acted in the way that he did under compulsion. So, finally, the case of Akule, it states that um, common law defences are disallowed. So, that's just irrelevant, but that's pretty much just compulsion. So, it's pretty simple. If I just reinstate what the elements are um it is threat to kill or cause grievous bodily harm the threat has to be immediate and um the third person who has made the threat must be present during the commission of the crime the accused must commit the offense in the belief that the threat will be carried out and you cannot be part of an association or conspiracy so back to the case of Raroa, I just remembered that they made some points about the threat to kill or cause grievous bodily harm. They made four points. So threats must come from a person and they can be implied from actions or conduct. They don't need to be words. Threat also has to be specific. General apprehension or fearfulness is not sufficient. Finally, third, threat must be accompanied by specific demand. So you need to say, if you do not... Um, carry away this body and dispose of it I will shoot you and kill you and then finally the threat must be kill to kill or cause serious harm so it cannot be like I'm just going to smash you like a lot of the cases say or I'm just going to waste you it has to be like I will kill you so that is pretty much the defense of compulsion So now we're going to be talking about necessity, also known as duress by circumstance. So it's really hard to actually keep these straight in your head, but necessity slash duress of circumstance, I would probably go more duress of circumstance. And yeah, so basically duress of circumstance is where something is threatening the accused. It is not a person, it's a situation or something like that. It is preserved by 
section 20 so it is a common law defense and that is pretty much it in new zealand duress of circumstance used to be called necessity but they've kind of diverged from that so um just stick with the duress of circ- by circumstance so the rationale is that it is difficult to comply with the law in states of emergency so when you are in a circumstance that kind of forces you to do something the law will give you an excuse so in the case of Dudley and Stevens was held that guilt you're guilty of murder regardless if you um, were compelled to by the circumstance so um, there is no duress by, by circumstance regarding murder in the case of copy it was held that there are five elements to the duress by circumstance um, defense so the first one is you need a really extraordinary emergency <laughs> um, second you need an honest belief making the accused compelled to break the law third the honest belief must be based on reasonable grounds so this is an objective test and you must have no realistic choice but to act in that way and the response must be proportionate to the peril or harm they faced so that is essentially the case of copy in the case of hutchinson the court of appeal reinstates the points made in copy and adds an additional element of a nexus between imminent peril and the choice to respond to the threat by unlawful means. So in the case of Kawiti, it was held that compulsion doesn't apply um, as threat must come from a human agent. And actually that's pretty simple. Um, there's also the one case called Re-A, which is called Necessity Proper, and is basically just the lesser of two evils. So that's pretty much duress of circumstances, slash duress by circumstance, and yeah.